0: Hey everyone, this is Patrick with the 307RPG Podcast, and I just want to take a moment and say thank you to all of our amazing patrons. It's because of you that we're able to do the things that we do. If you like our show and you want to support us, you can find us on patreon.com slash theforgeherald. Thanks everyone, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 307 RPG Podcast. My name is Patrick, and I'll be your host today. And today, we have a very special episode, as we are going to be interviewing a tabletop RPG writer, developer, creator... Mr. Matthew Dawkins. Matthew is here to discuss his game, They Came From Beneath the Sea, as well as tell us a little bit about some of the stretch goals that were unlocked during the Cults of the Blood Gods campaign on Kickstarter that recently closed for Vampire 5th Edition. So let's jump right into it. Matthew, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me.
0: We are going to be talking a little bit about, well, quite a bit about, if they came from beneath the sea, as well as, and this is a surprise for our listeners, uh, some of the stretch goals from Cults of the Blood Gods. But before we do that, Matthew, tell our listeners a little bit about you, just in case, and I can't imagine they haven't, but just in case they haven't heard of you.
1: Uh, Okay, so my name is Matthew Dawkins. I have been now writing role-playing games professionally for the last, five or six years uh, i've been doing it full-time for the last three years uh, so this is my profession i have been gaming uh, role-playing since i was about 18 years old and have played ran and enjoyed everything from D to vampire to cyberpunk to all the lovely indie games that are out there i'm i guess well traveled in the in the world of rpgs uh, in terms of writing i Predominantly work on horror games. Uh, I guess I'm most closely associated with Vampire the Masquerade, although I'm the World of Darkness line developer for Onyx Path, so I oversee all of the World of Darkness games for that company. I've also worked on Vampire for Modiphius and for Paradox, White Wolf on 5th edition. I have contributed to Call of Cthulhu for Chaosium, Modern Age for Green Ronin, Cult Divinity Lost for Helmgast and uh solemn veil vale, upcoming folk horror rpg for a dirty vortex that'll be on kickstarter in june But uh, outside of horror i also have a great love of uh the eddie webbs games uh the pug steady games of pugmire monarchies of mao and pirates of pugma i've contributed to them and of course they came from beneath the sea which is uh, part of the reason i'm on because that book is very close to release, uh, save for pandemic-induced lack of publication. (laughs) Um, But I'm a big fan of B-movies, of cinema in general, and uh, They Came From Beneath the Sea was something of a labour of love of mine. Uh, And I think on my YouTube channel, Gentleman's Guide to Gaming, I first spoke about it something like nine years ago. And the version that is coming out, the version that is finished in PDF, is very different to the initial concept, but it's uh, very gratifying to see it completed.
0: And, and you're also a writer on the new uh, Werewolf 5th edition, correct? Yes, of course,
1: Werewolf 5th edition. Sometimes I lose track of my own credit. How egotistical. Um, oh, well, I'm, I tend to be working on quite a lot of projects at the same time. You have to in this industry, really, if you want it to be a full-time gig. Uh, because Although some companies pay better than others, none of them pay spectacularly well. And that's often the case in any creative field, unless you're at the tippy top. And so I'm currently working on Werewolf 5th Edition for Hunters Entertainment. I'm working on the Chapters board game for Flyos Games. I've worked on Heritage, the Vampire the Masquerade board game. Uh, for Nice Guy Publishing, Nice Games Publishing, I'm, I, I, I may well have got them wrong there. Uh, and a couple of video games as well that I can't go into, but are vampire related. So, yeah, uh, I keep
0: busy. I was going to say, you are a very busy individual.
1: Yeah, if uh, without like Google Calendar and my Google Drive, I would very quickly lose track of everything I've got to work on. But it is a full... As I said, it's a full-time job, but it's a full-time lifestyle. Being a parent, writing for a living. uh, Sometimes it means writing late into the night or working weekends. But the good thing is it's never got to a point where it's stopped my enjoyment of gaming. I still regularly play role-playing games every single week. I've got a face-to-face group which obviously isn't meeting right now given the current global situation but we are still playing horror on the orient express online via cam and uh, i am also running v5 for patreons and pathfinder for patreons so it's uh yeah i i like to keep my hand in as a gm or storyteller as well as writing i don't think you can really truly appreciate whether a game works unless you're running it or playing it. So yeah, I think playtesting or just playing in general is a good way to keep the imagination fresh.
0: Oh, I could definitely agree with that. Now we did bring you on here to talk about they come from beneath the sea. Or sorry, they came from beneath the sea. So let's let's go ahead and dive into this book because This book is just a hoot to read through. I've had so much fun reading through this book. And and I got to know, how did you come up with this?
1: Okay, so I've been a big fan of old sci-fi movies, 1950s or 40s through to 60s science fiction and horror for most of my life, probably since about the age of eight or nine, had an uncle with a massive tape library of all kinds of weird features that he had recorded. Uh, He had one of those satellite dishes in the front yard, you know, uh, so he could get things broadcast from America. (laughs) And uh, I was familiar with movies like It Came From and all kinds of weird and wonderful things that aren't necessarily uh, immediately available or weren't back then. And I just enjoyed the farce of it, I enjoyed the drama, the fact that the actors always played it straight, even in something like Plan 9 from Outer Space, the actors are earnestly believing in what they're doing. They never stop and wink at the camera. And so I have always wanted to run games that have that element of this situation is nonsense, all the characters in it believe it's deadly serious. So that was one strain. The other strain was I was always a big fan of XCOM Terror from the Deep, a PC game by Microprose at the time uh, not related, well, tangentially related to the recent XCOM games, but it was the original uh, isometric version. And I really like the idea in XCOM: Terror from the Deep of these alien menaces attacking coastal towns, uh, crashing their submarines on the seabed, and you having to investigate them, taking cruise liners hostage, and things like that. And the general horror related to the the Lovecraftian appearance of some of these creatures. Uh, XCOM: Terror from the Deep, considering how minimalistic the graphics are, the tentaculats in that game still freak me out when I see them. So. Initially, I was working on "They Came from Beneath the Sea" as a deadly serious XCOM-style game, where you made up a squad of aquanauts, essentially mercenaries, uh, in a in a dystopian world where governments have collapsed. Everything's <laughs> run by mega corporations, and the only thing that can save humanity from these aliens from the deep are these different uh, private military companies that all have different gimmicks, essentially. Now, uh, you were going to go down to the bottom of the sea and fight these aliens. You were going to save uh, tropical islands and cruise liners and so on. It was basically XCOM Terror from the Deep. And initially, the system I was using when I was running that was a version of Phoenix Dawn Command system, which, uh, if you're at all familiar uh, with. Phoenix Dawn Command. Uh, the system is incredibly granular, very hard work. But I just wanted a straight military mission-based game, so I played that, ran that a few times, and it wasn't very good. It well, it just wasn't terribly imaginative. And so I kept tinkering with it. And this is quite a long story, so I do apologise. But around the same time, I was running. Uh, occasionally, I ran comedy games at my local role-playing club around Halloween or around sort of special events, around special festivals. And there's a sitcom over in the UK called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. They only had one season. And it was basically what they came from beneath the sea became, where you have terrible actors playing things great, with props being really cheap, costumes being dreadful, and the plots being awful. (laughs) And Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, by the way, if you've not checked it out, I definitely recommend it if you can. But that was a sort of horror show, or pseudo-horror show. And what I would do with my games of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, was I ran Garth Marenghi's Dark Place using All Flesh Must Be Eaten. I just used All Flesh Must Be Dark Place, and All Flesh Must Be Eaten is a zombie survival role-playing game by Eden Studios. And... I incorporated a system called Quips. And Quips was basically, if you could quote your character from Garth Marenghi's Dark Places lines, an entertaining moment in the game, if not appropriate moment, you would get like extra dice to hit or bonuses to the 3D6 you had to roll to shoot a zombie between the eyes, that sort of thing. And so even at the most inappropriate moment, you would have something like... uh, the character of Dean Lerner from Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, or Thornton Reed, sorry, is the character. He would say, uh, if Wonton catches uh, wind of this, my ass is grass, and he's got a lawnmower, big. Which is a <laughs> dreadful, it's a dreadful line, but it works because it's dreadful. And so the, that quip mechanic kind of stayed with me years later and i'm going back to the drawing board with they came from beneath the sea and i thought well why not make it a little more amusing and make it more like the b movies that invaders from beneath the sea appear in and i pitched the idea to rich thomas because i was working freelance for onyx path at the time on and off as a part-time gig and i pitched it to him at gen con probably 2000 and I'm going to say 2017, and he was interested in the idea, but wanted more materials. So when it came to the Grand Masquerade, which was a big vampire event, of course, in New Orleans, I was there as well, uh, working for Onyx Path, and I had a proper sit-down pitch meeting with Rich over dinner, and I pitched it to him, we discussed contractual things, with they came from beneath the sea as a comedy sci-fi game where your characters again play it completely straight but the world around them is utter nonsense and you have various mechanics like the quips i mentioned where you could have uh, you could punch out a uh, a slimy octopus and if one of your quips is "Mm -mm, smells like mama's cherry pie it doesn't make sense but it's entertaining. Much the same as you could have your character utter that quip going into the diner, and it's everything's normal. You say, mmm, smells like mama's jerry pie. It still works, you get your bonuses. We also discussed the mechanic of cinematics at the time, which was the idea that you could... Uh, spend a group resource to buy things like a cheap set that your characters could just run through the wall of if the enemy that's chasing you is too dangerous or you could just cut to black with a missing reel and then pick up again somewhere completely different the centipus is about to devour you the hundred tentacle octopus about to devour you and all your crewmates You insert a missing scene by spending some of this group pool called the director's, or the writer's pool, I should say. And then you basically pick up later on, but your characters and players are never allowed to refer to how you got out of that situation. It was just, it just happened somehow. You can vaguely allude to, I've never seen someone do that with a pineapple before, but you can't actually say exactly how you got out of it because the reel is missing. In, sh- in short, uh, I pitched all of this to Rich. Rich liked the idea of it, and I got to put together a team, and we came to write and develop and get the art in for They Came From Beneath the Sea and launched a very successful Kickstarter for it. So that was pleasing and gratifying.
0: Which was my next question was I was going to talk about the Kickstarter itself because I know I was one of the initial backers of that one. What was your feeling when you saw that Kickstarter getting... You know, when, once you realized that it was going to indeed back, uh, sorry, fully fund,
1: uh, so that was surprising. I mean, I thought it would fund, and again, that might sound a little arrogant, but I was pretty confident based on the sheer amount of playtesting I'd done with this game that there would be an audience for it. I just wasn't sure how large the audience would be, and I think that was always. There was always a sense of nerves that, well, this is a brand new property, a brand new game. We had the exact same thing with Pugmire and Cavaliers of Mars. where we thought, okay, well, this is a fresh idea. Is the audience really going to go for it? And they came from beneath the sea, just seemed to grab people sufficiently that we, I think, cleared $60,000. And we weren't aiming for a massive amount because we were quite happy to just on the print run. And that was it. That's all we wanted to do. So the fact that we managed to get more than that so that we could fund stretch goal books, uh, which we ended up funding, three of them, mm-hmm. uh, which are all now developed as well, the, yeah, the feeling was immensely gratifying. A, a relief, of course. And <laughs> uh, it's, I, I, I get poked pretty much every week on Twitter by, by someone who wants to find out how the book's going or they want to tell me about how their game has gone recently. And I think the most wonderful thing for me to hear is just how much fun everybody is having with it. It's something I try and take to every project I work on, but I have a strong mentality. And sometimes I disagree with my colleagues Eddie Webb and Dixie Cochran on this. Uh, I believe gaming should always be fun. And that may run counter to the fact that I love games like *Wraith of the Oblivion* and *Vampire the Masquerade* and *Call of Cthulhu*. But I, uh, but I still, even in horror games, real miserable horror games, I still want players to laugh at the table occasionally. Sometimes just to break the tension. Other times because even in the depths of the worst of humanity, humor can be found. Uh, or should be found with any luck, because I think it's, well, one of the uh, one of the greatest traits we have as a race, as a human race, is the ability to laugh in, in dire situations. So when I, uh, when I hear that They Came From Beneath the Sea is being received so well and people are just laughing, I love the fact that when you run They Came From Beneath the Sea at a convention, or play it, Every other table, and this is very antisocial. Every other table in the room, where they're running other games like D and D, like Pen Dragon, like I'll look for other games on my shelf. Traveller, God, like why not? <laughs> um, they're all staring daggers at you because everyone around your table is just in fits of laughter. Because They Came From Beneath Sea is a genuinely fun game. And you walk away from a game if They Came From Beneath the Sea happy that you played it. Even if it's the most ridiculous plot you've ever participated in. As long as you're keeping to the premise, uh, although I've shown on Red Moon Roleplaying that you can easily adjust it to become Lovecraftian horror, uh, I think as long as you're sticking to the premise and you're not inserting anything that is completely against genre, Uh, It just makes people laugh. It makes them smile. It makes them have a good time. And the fact that the Kickstarter made people feel that and people since then have reported on having a good time with it is just, it it warms my cold, dead heart. (laughs) I
0: I can honestly say I don't know that I've ever had so much fun reading a rule book, just flipping through the pages. And and, because I think I've read about 100 pages of the book so far. And I don't know that there's ever a point where I don't have some sort of chuckle at some of the mechanics or just some of the examples. It is a fun book to read.
1: Well, that's I'm very glad you think so. Uh, and that was a challenge, I'll be honest, because it's a big team on that book. It's sometimes I develop books and I hire lots of freelancers. Sometimes I only ha- hire a handful. And they came from beneath the sea was sizable enough that I wanted a decent sized team. A big th- and the good part of hiring a big team is you will generally get work in quicker. This is the trade-off. This is the, develop- the developer's secret moment. <laughs> uh, that if you hire, let's say, thirteen writers on a book, they will each have word counts of around five to ten thousand words, and that's pretty easy to blast through in the course of a month, maybe even less. So that means the developer gets the text in pretty early, and can start developing it quickly. It basically advances up the schedule nice and fast. The downside is, unless those writers have been collaborating very closely with each other, the tone can be all over the place. Uh, I think there's, there's plenty of excellent games I can think of where it's quite apparent when the writer changes chapter to chapter, but there's also games, I think, that suffer from that tonal shift. and They came from Beneath the Sea took some development, and it's no fault of the writers, but it took some development from me to make sure that tone stayed at the right level of humour. Because I'm sure some people will listen to this and they'll think, comedy, uh, that's kind of the lowest form of entertainment. (laughs) Or I don't want to be doing comedy. I don't want to be told what's fun. I don't want to be told what's amusing. And I don't want to be reading a rule book full of jokes that I'm not laughing at. And I agree. I think that would be dreadful. So the trick with They Came From Beneath the Sea, I think, and the trick with any good comedy material in literature is not to just crack jokes, have people sipping up on banana skins and falling on their pines and things like that, because that's not amusing to read about. You should never tell someone what is funny. You should just present them with the tools that they need to make it amusing for themselves and for others. So essentially, your this book is just a delivery mechanism for humour. It gives you lots of examples of what you could do, and things like the quips. The quips are amusing because they are almost all non sequitur. Would put them in any sentence and they could be, or any paragraph, and they could be amusing just because of how ridiculous they sound. And I think that that non sequitur ideal that idea of the game that the characters and to an extent the players are all going to be playing it straight until it comes time to use the powers that are in this game that completely break down the fourth wall and the fifth wall and the sixth wall <laughs> uh, and uh yeah so i had to go through the book with a fine tooth comb some of the writers did a wonderful job in terms of tone I have to give a special shout out to Larry Blamire, the director of *The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver, *Trail of the Screaming Forehead*, and *Dark and Stormy Night*, because he was one of the contributing authors on the RPG. He wrote all of the fiction, and he also wrote uh, some of the monsters for it. All all of the quips that are in *They Came from Beneath the Sea* are from Larry, and reaching out to him a movie director to work on a tabletop RPG was very much a bit of a crapshoot he we'd never spoken before but uh, he was enthusiastic enough about the idea that he was he just got on board and did it and i've rarely been so impressed by a first time RPG writer's content <laughs> but he's a fantastic author
0: i want to i want to dive into a little bit of the actual uh, the book itself and, and and kind of the gameplay aspect. There isn't necessarily classes, or I'm a huge fan of vampires, so we'll say clans. Uh, mm. Instead, in this book, we have archetypes. Yes. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the archetypes and how you developed those and, and just kind of go into some detail about those.
1: So the archetypes and They Came From Beneath the Sea are all based on archetypes that exist in the medium, being 1950s B-movies. We even, in fact, before the archetype chapter starts, or in the character creation chapter perhaps, mention other archetypes you can quite easily build. But The archetypes in They Came From Beneath the Sea are, I'm testing my memory now, uh, the everyman being your blue-collar hero that just wants to defend their patch of land. You've got your survivor, probably grizzled, following service in the Second World War or the Korean War. Uh, we've got The Scientist, of course, an obligatory, a staple in B-movies, science fiction B-movies. Bad or not, uh, you have the, good lord, you have the G-man. <laughs> I was trying to go through them uh, alphabetically, and because I jumped to Scientist and Survivor. Yeah, you have the G-man, which is commonly the the man in a suit with shades, but... Again, being 1950s, it can quite easily be a sheriff or any other kind of law enforcement, someone who has authority. You also have the mouth. Mouth is my favorite archetype because that's the plucky journalist. It's the often hapless people that are caught in this wave of invasion or horror or whatever it happens to be but uh, They stand at the front of the group and belt out snappy one-liners, and they win an award presented to them. You know, they win the key to the city afterwards after punching out a Gillman, despite the fact it's the uh, survivor that blew up the Gillman submarine. He probably just slinks off back into the woods in his survivalist cabin. So the the archetypes all fall in or all fit certain character roles that exist within these sci-fi movies and probably movies later than the 1950s and 60s. It was important to me, and again, something Larry and the other writers indeed helped with. We all went through inspirational media, and there's quite a lot of it in this book, where we were looking at some of the characters. here, And each of them fits within one of these five archetypes. So the idea of the archetype is it doesn't bend you down like at level 1 you get this bonus, at level 2 you get this bonus. It's a wrapper for your character, more like a clan than a character class or profession, I guess. But it's one of three paths that you will take on in They Came From Beneath the Sea. In your archetype path, you also have an origin, which could be anything from uh, suburbia to... Uh, outdoorsman who grew up on the streets and you also have an ambition uh, which might be uh, raise a family become you know get rich or die trying that kind of thing when you uh, match those three uh, uh those three paths together origin archetype and ambition you build a character that you then put on your sheet and away you go
0: and and I noticed that in the character creation, it's kind of very similar with um, at least how we do in, in our group with V5, where you actually sit down with your, your storyteller, your DM, your director in this case, and, and say, okay, let's talk about the concept of your character before you just jump in and say, I'm building a G man. Well, hold on, slow down. Let's talk about the concept <laughs> first. Uh, and I really thought I, I love that idea. You know, we tried that with V5 for the first time uh, a couple months ago. And except for one player, everybody loved how it worked. So I, I thought that was interesting that you guys kept that now, or I shouldn't say kept that, but you applied that here. They came from beneath the sea uses the story path system. Isn't that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Explain. Cause I've never used the story path system. I've been playing vampires since second edition. So I'm used to how that works and story path seems very similar. Um, yeah. So if you could explain that to us, that'd be great.
1: Uh, so, if you're familiar with Vampire: The Masquerade, or well, any World of Darkness or Chronicles of Darkness games, so that's storyteller system for World of Darkness, storytelling system for Chronicles of Darkness, there is a difference. The story path system, but they came from Beneath the Sea, Dystopia Rising, Scion. Uh, the story path system is built around the idea that your character follows paths, and when they gain experience, they, you can basically choose which of your character's paths that experience goes into. Does it go to bulk up their origin powers, their archetype powers, or their ambition powers? Uh, it's still a D10 system, uh, D10 dice pool system, uh, with difficulties tending to be 8s and above, so like Chronicles of Darkness, if you're familiar with that. And on top of the fact that you know difficulty is eight, if you score a success, congratulations, you win. You have the added features like enhancement, complications. Enhancements allow you to, let's say, gain bonuses. Uh, So let's say you are not only shooting at someone with a sniper rifle, but you're looking through the scope. It's a bright and clear day with no wind. Uh, Your shot may come with a plus two enhancement uh that's not going to give you a bonus to your dice roll but it will give you a bonus to the effect if you succeed likewise you may have a complication complications are kind of attached to the difficulty the difficulty of a roll might be 2 so let's say you need two eights and above however it also comes with a complication of 2 which the the one that often gets presented in story path games is you're climbing over a fence but there's barbed wire on top it's a rainy day so the difficulty to climb the fence is 2 barbed wire on top is a complication you only need two successes to climb over the fence however if you don't buy off the complication with another two successes you're going to tear your clothing or you're going to scratch yourself you can still advance but there is a complication so it's like an extra tier of narrative control to difficulty that's how i see it 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 isn't uh, there to encumber play or make anything more difficult than it needs to be. It's more that, it's much akin to, if you're familiar with the fate system, the idea of tagging your surroundings and building in an aspects and so on. Uh, that's how I see it anyway. It's that you can start using the environment around you, characters' dispositions towards you, the, uh, let's say, how clean your gun happens to be, or how dirty it is, conversely to make the world feel more alive and your actions have more consequence. So your other story path elements in this game are the way things like investigation break down. I won't go into the system in granular detail, but mm-hmm. uh, you, there are many systems in the game that you can choose to use for things like chases and drama and investigation and action. Uh, one of my favorite systems in the game, which is uh, unique to They Came From Beneath the Sea, although it works within any story path game if you want to adapt it, is the level of injuries that every character basically has the same level of health. And it's the level of health that is dramatically appropriate. So you have, I think, four levels of injury. You have three dots on each level except for the last one where you have one. And those levels of injury are called things like the top one is that'll leave a scar. And the second one is something like I'm gonna feel like I'm gonna feel that in the morning. And the last one is go on without me, I'll only slow you down. And the last one is just death scene. <laughs> now in most games, the more injured you get, the more debilitated your character gets. In, they came from beneath the sea, the more injured you get, the more dice you get to add to your to a path of your choice whether it's your origin, your archetype, or your ambition so to go back to those you assign different skills on your character sheet to different paths you say, I cultivated these skills when I became a survivor so I'm going to put a dot in my, I don't know firearms or uh, well, aim i'm gonna put a dot in my close combat and so on now if you are on let's say i'm gonna feel that in the morning that isn't what it's called in the game but it's escaping me it, you gain a couple of dice to let's say you decide to add it to your archetype pools that means whenever you're using close combat and aim from that point on you are better at it the reason being in a movie Someone being injured very rarely puts them out of action. If anything, as soon as someone starts getting scarred and starts limping, the tension is ramped up, but the hero becomes more heroic because heroes have to lose, lose, lose before they can win. That's how stories tend to work. That's how likable heroes develop. In but Anyway, you have to face adversity first. Just to conclude, I think when it comes to death scene, You essentially have a massive amount of dice that you get to add to your next dice roll, but it's your last dice roll. So you can keep your character alive for as long as you don't need to roll dice. But when you do roll dice, that is the last die roll you make, or dice roll you make, and then your character dies. So for God's sake, make sure you're using it in something suitably dramatic. Uh, And of course, you'll then get final words. Everyone gets a scene where they get to. Utter their final words, even if by rights they, they all that is left of them is their head and neck, they will still get to spit out some final words about crabs or god, I love this coastal town despite all the shark men. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. And that's exactly the kind of stuff I'm talking about. I re- as I read through this book and there's stuff written in here, like I love the section of you're talking about the injuries in under first aid. It's just a couple sentences. That says, once the fight's over, you probably want to stop bleeding so much. I mean, the blood's just getting everywhere. That couch will never be clean again. I love <laughs> reading stuff like that. It just cracks me up. I think it's so funny. Like I said, I've never walked away from reading a book, uh, a rules book, just chuckling every time. Cause it's so much fun.
1: That's no, as I say, that is wonderful to hear. I think that that credit goes to Eddie. Eddie Webb uh, wrote the system chapter uh, for They Came From Beneath the Sea. And yeah, it's it it was very important that we got the stone right, as I mentioned earlier. And without it being overbearing, there's some games do it amazingly well. I always give kudos to Paranoia. Paranoia is probably the RPG that does it better than any other in terms of, or at least to my taste, um, but can address the reader in an in-universe way without it feeling overbearing and um, without the humor feeling over the top. Another game that, me, doesn't work like that is Hole, which is an old White Wolf game, Human-Occupied Landfill which is another humorous, dystopic game, but it's I find the meta uh, narrative of it and the way the writer addresses the reader constantly far too heavy going. So, yeah, I had to really strike a balance with They Came From Beneath the Sea.
0: I want to talk about some of the other systems. Uh, You mentioned Quips earlier, which... (laughs) I, of course, you, can, you can't help but think about Arnold Schwarzenegger's I'll Be Back uh, one liners yep. or even Clint Eastwood's one-liners when he drops them. Uh, so, they're, they're, I, I like that idea, but there's some other things that really add to the game. Uh, you mentioned like uh, the lost scene or, or uh, the idea of wait, here's a stuntman. So, I was hoping maybe you could talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> so, yeah, those are the cinematics. Uh, when
1: you lose in They Came From let's say you roll your dice and you fail that's not a bad thing you get what is called a point to go in the writer's pool and as the writer's pool bulks up with points because you just keep failing, the good news is you can use those points to do things like score re-rolls or to attempt something again, or you can use them to purchase cinematics and use them at that moment cinematics are very much meta powers These are the points where, by the fact the characters don't know why this is happening, the world around them starts shifting. So for instance, I mentioned things like the cheap set and the missing reel, and you mentioned summoning a stuntman, which you can do to, let's say, if your character is physically frail, you summon a stuntman, all your injuries are gone, your physical stats are all bumped up. As long as you don't say anything, you can keep playing as the stuntman. But as soon as you are required to talk, your stats go back down, and the actor is back. You, we've got things like, uh, oh, I, I like kill the extra. I think kill the extra is my favourite one because everyone loves using it. It's it's the real dark humour of uh, of the game. Where I think, just thinking about the last time I ran this, and we had a bunch of characters who were elving through a subterranean laboratory and there were corpses all over the place because an alien had broken loose and killed all the scientists and the a a lobster man i think it was just burst through the door and started snipping its way towards the heroes and there was this "Ah!" moment and someone just just played instinctively in a panic the kill the extra because they didn't want the Lobster Man to attack them. And so we, I basically had to describe how one of these scientists who was on the floor wasn't quite dead and was just starting to get up and say, it's fine, I was just pretending It's until the Lobster Man went away, at which point he gets decapitated by the Lobster Man. So... Uh, we've had other ones where people are involved in a well built up town square and a bunch of and i don't know some mutated jellyfish monsters floating over the town and they just Whack out, kill the extra when they're about to take the hit. And the little kid they've been speaking to all this time on the bike, the cheery little boy who says, Gee, mister, I'll help you. I know the way to the other side of town. At that point, gets sucked up by the jellyfish because they don't want to take the blow. Uh, you've got de- deleted scenes that allow you to revisit previous areas in the game. Essentially, you can play it like a flashback. You play deleted scene. And what you can do is, let's say you decided at one point you would go down in a submarine to the glowing people's nest at the bottom of the ocean. You get there, and you realize you never at any point described how you're going to tool up. You don't have any weapons. You don't have any explosives. You're just in there, in your boiler suits and bare hands, and you think, oh, this isn't going to go so well. So someone spends the uh, writer's pool points on deleted scene, which allows you to, at that point, cut back to the scene where you were loading up the submarine, and one of you can say, and have you remembered the guns? And another person can say, yes, here they are. They were just at the bottom of the flatbed, and at which point you load the guns on, you skip back to the future scene, <laughs> and you now have guns. Uh There's all kinds of fun little things like that, that play around with the cinema genre. Uh, well, if cinema is a genre. And uh, I think it's unique. that They came from Beneath the Sea. Uh, that's probably a bold claim. I'm sure there are other games that do it. But uh, it's unique, at least from my perspective. Uh, the characters always believe they are characters. This isn't the Truman Show. They are not actors that believe that, that this world is real. Uh, they are not actors playing characters either. They cannot just walk off set to have a smoke. They are just characters in a very weird situation. And the players and director, the GM, are very collaborative in the way that they're going to torment these characters and also have fun with them. So the combination of in-character logic and metagaming that exists in this game is pretty new from my perspective. And I think it's something that's really grabbed people because of the idea of metagaming. Metagame is a dirty word in a lot of RPGs. I remember when I first started playing D&D, if you asked something like, what's the troll's weakness? Uh, Or no, no, a better way of doing it would be the ranger suddenly equips acid arrows and starts shooting them at the troll. And at which point the GM says, how did you know to use that? Because the player, of course, knows that the troll is vulnerable to acid and fire, and there's it's been a bit sniffy. The uh, vampires, vampires, the same. You know, we're not going to Jerusalem because Malkav's buried there. How would you know that? <laughs> so the idea of making meta not only acceptable, and they came from beneath the sea, but also a fun element of the game, as I think, really grabbed people. And cinematics are probably the of the way Meta is played with in, in They Came From. I, I've not encountered anyone yet who has not enjoyed being able to temporarily take on that directorial role and essentially give the director some time off by playing a cinematic and saying, well, at this point, I'm going to make the alien fall in love with you. Because one of the cinematics is, <laughs> um, <laughs> is you know a Beauty and the Beast cinematic where the, the alien and the human, mind you, have got to lock eyes or gills <laughs> across the room or whatever it's using for eyes, and they form a bomb. Suddenly it drops its weapon. It realizes, I'm going to have to track this human down again at some point and romance them. Uh, So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's a lot of nonsense, but it, it's, yeah. it's fun nonsense.
0: That's what I was about to say. It's a, it sounds like it's a lot of fun nonsense. Now, there are some videos of you running games on YouTube of They Came From Beneath the Sea, and I, I'm going to link those in the show notes because I think people should check those out. Uh, I do want to talk about there is, there is I don't know if you would call it a sequel, but there's another book in this They Came From series that you guys are planning that you All recently made the announcement of.
1: It's a really good way of referring to it. Okay. <laughs> first first <laughs> there <that> was Beneath <laughs> the Sea, now the sequel, Beyond the Grave. <laughs> Uh, yes. We've yes, they came from beyond the grave. Is the one we're currently working on. It's in development. All the writers have turned their drafts in, at quality too. Thank you, writers. Um, it's uh, so when I say I'm a fan of cinema, I can quite unashamedly watch any, most any genre with a big smile on my face, and it doesn't matter the quality. I'll try and find some kind of jewel in there, even if it's uh, dreadful, dreadful, low-budget, bad-acting, awful story. And so jumping from the 1950s black-and-white B-movies and into the early 1960s, and that's got a very Cold War feel, we jump into the late 1960s and early 1970s of Hammer, Amicus, Roger Corman, Monster Movies. And they came from beyond the grave is is horror now the, the the main struggle I had with Beyond the Grave initially was I discussed this with Rich Thomas and Eddie Webb at Onyx Path, and at the time, it wasn't that I was burned out on comedy i was I had doubt that the games would ever be valued if they are just comedy. And this was a silly thing for me, because I thought, okay, well, They Came From Beyond the Grave can be cigarette-stained, sepia, grim, uh, 19th-century Hammer Horror style, you know, uh, uh, carriages riding through the storm towards a castle, Castle Dracula. Now, And, and still have the same mechanics uh, when it comes to things like cinematics things like that, but it would lose the the humor element. That was what I was aiming for initially. And I felt, rather stupidly at the time, that I didn't want to be seen as the comedy developer. I thought it would cheapen me. I thought it would cheapen the They Came From brand. I wanted them to be the cinema game rather than the comedy game. But Rich and Eddie explained to me, quite rightly, There is no genre that can't be made funny. Uh, Part of the reason people love Beneath the Sea, the main reason people love Beneath the Sea, is that it's funny. And it made me realize that although comedy is often valued less than other mediums or other genres, I keep using the word genre as the word of the interview, uh, it's also one of the hardest to get right. I think if you can get comedy right, you've achieved something really special and we somehow managed it with beneath the sea and i think we managed it with beyond the grave but they sort of turned me around on that and made me realize oh okay so this can actually be more like young frankenstein This gonna be more like haunted honeymoon um,
0: oh uh, and other. <laughs> um,
1: but you know that this could, we could start delving into again why the technicolor of the blood why the absolute vulgarity of the eroticism You know, there's just breasts flashed on screen in a Hammer horror movie because because they're being partly bankrolled by uh, someone who works for Penthouse I think that was the case with Caligula anyway, but that wasn't a Hammer movie I digress. The, the fact is as the 70s came along despite the fact everyone sees the se- 70s as a rather miserable decade uh, cinema itself became a hell of a lot more liberal and maybe as a, I guess, rebuttal to the general malaise of the era, the Vietnam era. So you've got that, uh, you've, you've got that feel of grim and grime. but At the same time, it's still bad acting. It's still cheap sets. It's still over the top. And the villain will still reappear for the sequel inexplicably despite the fact you saw him reduced to ash in the previous game. And in Beyond the Grave, we've done something quite different with the setup, where Beneath the Sea is almost exclusively based in that nineteen fifty small-town America. Uh, we've got, with Beyond the Grave, it's a two-parter. You've got the modern era, and you, well, 1970s era, and you've got the 19th century era, both in the same book. But the General premise being that your characters... You will basically play two characters in the game, but in two different eras. You're not time travellers, but you will at some point meet a crypt keeper, for instance, or someone who runs the local curiosity shop, and you will be told the story of your ancestor or someone who looks very much like you because they're played by the same actor. At which point you go back to the 19th century, go through some... Asylum-based adventure or Castle Dracula-style adventure or uh, Creepy Villager-style adventure. And then you go to the modern era, and you have to settle everything that was basically opened in the 19th century. Because so many of those movies, like Tales from the Crypt, like Asylum, like... Uh, oh, gosh, well, lots of those portmanteau movies. You've got something like five, four or five different stories in a one-and-a-half-hour time frame work across eras like that. Uh, so yeah that's what we're doing with Beyond the Grave and it was a bit experimental but I think from the manuscript it's turned out very, very well.
0: Uh, is that something we should expect to see on Kickstarter soon?
1: Uh, I don't know how soon but I mean the, the manuscript is done. We don't generally get things on Kickstarter until we've got quite a lot of the art in just because it's nice to show people off what the what the game will look like. But I imagine the game will be on Kickstarter. So at some point, definitely.
0: And with They Came From Beneath the Sea, is I you know to Onyx Path, typically after Kickstarter ends, you're still able to back it by going to Backer Kit. Is They Came From Beneath the Sea still available on Backer Kit?
1: Uh, beneath the Sea is available on Backer Kit for a very limited time because, uh, as I say, the PDF is now completed. We've got all the art in, all the errata has been incorporated. I think we've even made the GM screen. Everything is done now, including all the proofing. Uh, What we've done is sent it off to get published, but until the book is published and sent to retail, I think you will be able to back it on kit. The only thing slowing that down right now is the uh, pandemic and good reason people aren't necessarily working uh, like they were and so until all that lifts i don't know what the status is going to be but what that does mean is you can back it on backer kit and that means you can get the pdf pretty much immediately if you back it and you don't get the pdf immediately just contact us via the backer kit and we'll send it to you uh, because the pdf is all finished which play straight away
0: Okay, so Matthew, let's change gears. We did talk. We did say we're going to talk about some of the stretch goals from Cults of the Blood Gods. I'm just going to turn that over to you because although I backed it, I don't remember what all the stretch goals were. So I'm going to flip that to you and let you tell us what you what you guys are working on for that.
1: Well, so Cults of the Blood Gods for Vampire the Masquerade was the book that introduced religion to vampire. That uh, religion had existed in the vampire before, of course, but I'm a big fan of books like Faiths and Avatars for the Forgotten Realms of Planescape. All these uh, games uh, that have lots of deities, faiths, and orders, and things like that. I think it increases playability, customization, and things like that. That was my mechanical, or I guess, uh, meta reason for doing Cults of the Blood Gods. But beyond that, there's lots of lore, lots of uh, playable options, lots of new powers, and so on. Calls of course, the Blood Gods did very well for us on Kickstarter, which is very good news. Uh, to the point that it funded on Kickstarter three different stretch goals. Uh, those three stretch goals are currently being written, they're in first draft. We have the Trails of Ash and Bone. So, Trails of Ash and Bone is a book consisting of. Four different stories or chronicles. The first is I decided, kind of at the last minute, you know, what, I'm going to write up the story that I ran for Radmarine role playing the family because that was very popular, and so I'm I'm writing that one myself. So that's a very intimate story, all about uh, sort of interna- nascent squabbling within the hecata and Giovanni. We have, uh, we've got a story called Old Wounds, which takes you to Florence, where you've got a sort of grand political and mythological scheme that incorporates the Hecata and the Church of Set right now. That may change, but, uh, largely it's going to be a lot of, uh, tomb raiding, dealing with older powers and uh, older vampires, and lots of staring up beautiful architecture. Uh, we have, uh, a An excellent Golconda-based uh, t- story where your prince is converted suddenly, believes he finds Golconda because of this pilgrim that's arrived in the domain and shown him the light. Obviously, a lot of people think he's a fraud. Some people don't, but increasingly this person is converting vampires, and it might be weakening the Camarilla by doing so. So, you know, do you break the conversion and basically rob them of their salvation just to protect the domain, or do you allow them to go on their way and eventually see the domain fall? And then we've got one that is going to be a lot of fun, The Wellspring, which is all about what happens when a coterie uh, inadvertently inherits a cult. And I really like this one because the idea is you're going to start in Medius Res where you have just eliminated a white, a feral vampire in the woods. You've been sent out to kill him or her. And as you're searching through this vampire's things, you find a cult of humans who are slavishly devoted to the vampire. They've been registered as missing for a very long time, a lot of these people. And they can offer you a great deal. If you take them on, you are going to be set up. But the moral quandary of what happens when you take on a mortal cult of slavish followers is uh, something you have to carefully consider, especially when you're told, uh, we've just found out the white was the prince's child, don't come back to the city anytime soon. We're going to smooth this over. Stay out in the woods, hunt animals for a while, be cool. you know. And that's basically where you're stuck with the cult for about a week. Uh, so it kind of becomes a, a story a little like The Village by M. Night Shyamalan, in that you're in the wilderness, and the only people you've really got to speak to are these weird devotees that have been uh, saddled with a vampire for the last who knows how long. Uh, so yeah, that one's quite fun because it plays around with backgrounds and merits, you know, in a way that most chronicles don't. And there's something I like to go for in different vampire books: the idea that every domain is different, every story should be different. I'm I'm tired of reading stories about Anarchs versus Camarilla or Camarilla versus Sabbat, and it always being Prince, Sheriff, Primogen, and Seneschal and all that. I like every single story to feel different and poke into a different element of Vampire the Masquerade. So all of those do that. The other two books we've got are The Faithful Undead, which is a book very similar to Children of the Night and Children of the Revolution, uh, which are previous Vampire the Masquerade books that uh, presents you with lots of new characters you can incorporate as antagonists or supporting characters. It also has lots of coteries and uh, new coterie types that you can use. That's fun. Uh, We are going to be incorporating some big and powerful kindred that haven't appeared in V5 yet, but have appeared in previous editions, as long as Paradox allow us to. And then we've got, on top of that, uh, Forbidden Religions. And Forbidden Religions is a book all about the the cults and religions that vampires do not want other vampires to hear about. It was as if the Church of Set and the Bahari and the Church of Cain weren't bad enough. This is where you find Infernalists. This is where you find Golconda Seekers. This is where you find uh, cults that worship dubious Methuselahs and black sheep from the clans. There's a Nictuku cult in there as well. Oh, wow. Uh, Which you can imagine is a bit bloody and miserable. So, yeah, we've, uh, we're have we going to introduce characters in there as well, some powers, and I think some predator types, too. We've got merits and flaws being added to both Faithful Undead and Forbidden Religions at this time. Uh, we're a bit hazy on how much word count we should assign to them, so they may end up in one book or the other, but we'll see. And so, yeah, I'm developing uh, Trails of Ash and Bone by myself, co-developing uh, Faithful Undead with uh, Clara Herbal, and co-developing Forbidden Religions with John Burke. Uh, For both of them, this is their first development gig, so I'm kind of hand-holding, but they're both doing amazingly well, and we've got some brilliant teams on all three.
0: With uh, Chicago by Night, with that Kickstarter and the Chicago Folios, there was a print-on-demand option for the Chicago Folios. Will there be a print-on-demand option for these uh, stretch goals?
1: uh not at this time uh that's a good question <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, so, I like books <laughs> yeah uh so do i believe me uh, and, i know i've uh, seen you
0: i've seen the uh the bookshelves behind you <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of people
1: believe me but i get rid of a lot of books i've uh, heard I, you say I, that before yeah, I, I give them away uh because not it, well sometimes a charity but most of the time it's to other gamers and then i will get other books uh So there's a constantly rotating stock behind me. (laughs) Uh, I've um, so anyway. Back to the question. Right now, the well, and I think for the foreseeable future, the stance the Modifius has taken, because Modifius are the primary licensee in Mm -hmm. terms of V5, is that they don't want print-on-demand books. Uh, So I don't think none of these three are set have a print-on-demand option. Uh, They will all be in PDF, uh, and I believe Cults of the Blood Gods, and uh, I don't think I'm incorrect here, I think Cults of the Blood Gods is going to be available in traditional print and PDF, but I don't think print-on-demand for that one either. That's off the top of my head, Uh, but I would probably have to double-check. Either way, uh, yeah. right now Modiphius' stance is they don't want uh, to release any books that are of potentially um poor quality. I don't mean content, I mean in terms of binding and printing, inking and so on. And while I have absolutely no issue whatsoever with Lightning Source and the other companies that print on demand for Drive Through RPG, I'm guessing Modiphius uh, would prefer everything is traditionally printed and sold directly to retail. Gotcha. So um, yeah, for now those three books are not. But what I can recommend any listeners is that if they don't, if they do want these books printed, the best thing you can do is contact Paradox and tell them. Uh, because ultimately, uh, if enough voices join the choir to say so, we might be able to find some alternative option. Uh, we shall see.
0: Yeah, that would be excellent, and I know, I I do agree with you in that the the companies that Drive Through RPG uses for their print on demand, um, they do fantastic work. I have several books that were done that way, but there is a difference. I did have the Chicago by Night Kickstarter book, and then we did a couple of them that were doing as giveaways from print on demand, and there's there's a difference between the two books. Um, of oh, I definitely. Didn't, I didn't get the deluxe pre uh, print and and um pages. It's just still that heavier pound page, but. You know, I guess that's why you back the Kickstarter, right?
1: Yeah, uh, well, that's the thing. We don't do the deluxe version so often now on Kickstarter. We are currently with Mage of the Ascension Technocracy yes. Reloaded.
0: Which, which congratulations has- on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Uh, it's, yeah, passed $100,000 uh, within its first couple of days, and that's stunning uh, because, although I know the Technocracy is incredibly popular, maybe even more popular than the tradition, it <laughs> could be I I think that well, I thought that because it's a source book, it would hit funding, maybe get a couple of um maybe twenty thousand more than that. We've we've shot past our target. We're funding stretch goals quite happily. And I think it was just it was very good timing. People seem to be hungry for a new mage book. And, yeah, it's, it's just going amazingly well. So the Technocracy Reloaded is on Kickstarter right now uh, and is going to come in a deluxe version. Match the Mage of the Ascension 20th Anniversary Edition, a deluxe version. So that's a good thing.
0: I know I was actually hitting refresh on Kickstarter right around 12 o'clock my time, because that's when it would have launched to see when it was ready to go. And as soon as I could, I backed it. And I was like the 34th person to back it and, and like two <laughs> minutes in. <laughs> and I think I, I sat there and just watched it and just watched the numbers roll up and up and up. And at like 43 minutes, I think it was the exact time that it fully funded. Yeah. So it yeah. was, it was uh, pretty yeah, amazing.
1: It was, it, it was definitely under 45 minutes. I think. I believe it's the quickest funding book we had next to Exalted 3rd edition, which is pretty impressive. I mean, the figure, the target figure was lower, but it's still pretty impressive. We've already exceeded 1,000 backers, which is amazing in such a short space of time.
0: You know, unfortunately, Mage is one of those World of Darkness games that I've never had a chance to play. I always buy books for it, but I've never had a chance to play it. So I, I'm looking forward to this book and, and, and maybe one day convincing my group to give it a try.
1: Well, my best advice, not that you asked, is <laughs> uh, when running Mage the Ascension, keep it low key, keep it you just scale down to an intimate level. One of the most fun things I've done with Mage I mentioned this in a couple of interviews before, but... So some players just don't get on with the fact that you have to craft your own magic. You're basically given all the chemical components, for uh, want of a better term, and you're basically told, be imaginative. Because that's the core of the game, really. I've got this many dots in life, I've got this many dots in matter, what can I do with these? And really, it's whatever your imagination allows you to uh, not everyone is a spontaneous player. Some people like to plan in advance. In fact, I would say that's generally the difference between people that play Wizards and Sorcerers in... Or Sorcerers and Wizards in D&D, Pathfinder. And my advice is simply that players who play Mage of the Ascension should make spellbooks. Get a notepad, a nice one. And as whenever you create a spell... Write it down. Write down the spheres that go into that spell. Basically, it's ingredients. And then you can refer back to it the next time. And you've basically got justification there. You can make your own grimoire as you're going through mage. But other than that,
0: That's a fantastic idea.
1: And it's also a good reason to buy an Onyx Path journal off (laughs) redbubble.com. But I I don't get a commission. (laughs) <laughs> the the uh the thing I was doing with Mage of the Ascension when I last ran it, and I think worked very well, is have your characters as very low members of the traditions. Don't have every single tradition represented in a city. Have it basically caught up between a few different traditions in flux. You know, a couple of powerful, as a few minor ones, and everything else absent and go for the plot where mages can feel when another person is about to awaken, when someone is about to become a mage. And they are sent to catch that person before the technocracy catch them, before the nefandi, catch them, or any other malevolent group. So You can have your cultist of ecstasy, your ecstatic, your um, member of the Akashic Brotherhood, and whatnot. Uh, making their way to this tower block where this person has just awakened. And they get there, and it looks like there's been the scene of a murder, a spree. You know, There's loads of bodies all over the place. There's always loads of bodies in my, in my game.
0: It's always loads or, of bodies. <laughs>
1: yeah, or, or just explosions of blood, and clearly someone has awakened here and used power. Much like you might when you first change in Werewolf it's the Apocalypse. Werewolf, right. or, but they are gone. And as you're leaving the flat, thinking, "Well, shit, we don't want to be here because someone might have heard something. The police could be called." And you're still very low power majors. You might see the archetypal men in suits, men in black, making that they pull up in an unmarked sedan or a uh, or just a, a van with blacked out windows. And you know the technocracy here for potentially the exact same reason you are. Uh, so the NWO or one of these other groups. At which point, you have to make your way out of the apartment. You've got to negotiate your way past the technocracy. You can talk to them. You can say, the person's gone. I don't know where they are. Someone's got them. You can make an alliance with them temporarily. You can fight with them. Anything like that. But you you keep it low-key. You don't make it about someone about to threaten the world with destruction. You make it about characters, which I think is always the best route with any World of Darkness game, frankly.
0: It should be about the characters and less about dice rolling, that's for sure.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, certainly. And I think most people get that with V5. Uh, It was interesting, when V5 was first released, uh, there was a lot of people that looked at things like Hunger Dice, bestial failures, or messy failures, and so on, and were thinking, and compulsions, and were saying, oh, there's so much dice rolling in this game. But it's as if in the year or so since it's release, that people have finally got the idea that you don't actually need to roll hunger every single time. You don't actually need to concern yourself with messy failures and compulsions all of the time. Use it when it's dramatically appropriate. And it's almost like the system took some bedding in, but now it is. People are tending, at least anecdotally, to prefer it to the old way. Of storyteller, I think you know it's going to differ from storyteller to storyteller, player to player. Mm. But I think it has started. Well, it's definitely found its audience. Five is still doing very well uh, in the, I guess, market.
0: I know for me, you know, because I I started playing Vampire in 1994. I'm showing my age here. I was after high school. I was. Desperate for something other than D&D and just happened to come across the player's handbook and fell in love and had to go right back and buy the core rulebook. But um, I struggle sometimes with V5 just because I'm so used to second edition. Now, I've mm-hmm. I've convinced myself that I have to really dig into the rulebook and read through <laughs> it more thoroughly. And the more I read it, the more I'm like, oh, that's really neat. Oh, I like this part of it. Oh, that's kind of cool. So, yeah, I'm I'm definitely developing a new love for V5.
1: Well, my question to people like you and like myself, people who really clung to second edition of E20 as well, is really how often did you make roles for conscience, self-control? How often did you utilize natures and demeanors? How often did the blood pool actually come up as a moment of tension or plot other than I want to keep this above six or f- you know, five or six at any given time? Um, when did humanity ever feel pressing? kind of thing. And for most people, the answer is not often. They were, it's almost like uh, under the discipline section of the sheet, well, so mostly under the skills, but under disciplines, people just ignored the rest of it. You had your attributes, your skills, your disciplines. That was pretty much it. Maybe you took advantage of your merits and flaws, but I guarantee the storyteller often did. Right. and, right. and so yeah, The rest of it was just ignored.
0: We had a lot of people years ago when I was playing, we had a lot of people who would game the merits and flaws and, and they would stack characters in such a way that, oh, look, I can get extra freebie points if I do it this way. And yep. I <laughs> I personally get tired of power gamers.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I think every game does it. Uh, there's Every game has a way of of twisting it to the player's benefit. And that's why I think a lot of storytellers don't use merits and flaws from previous editions like Unbondable or Iron Will or um, what was it, Dark Fate or something like oh, that? Yes. Do- <laughs> uh, which always sounded fantastic narratively. The idea of as soon as you create your character, you get six points uh, because you just took a flaw <laughs> that dooms your character. But mo- Very few storytellers do build their chronicle around the doom of that character so that means that death is constantly strung out and often if the players really enjoyed playing that character no one really wants to see them die either so it's uh, i i really love the idea of it but it's implementation often left a lot to be desired
0: I I would agree, and and there's definitely a maturity level versus what Vampire was, and and don't get me wrong, I absolutely adore Vampire uh, in its earlier iterations to to what it is now, and I like the fact that you can see a change in this game because there's been so much change within the world that we live in. Um, Some of the things that were written in in 2nd edition Vampire would not at all work in V5.
1: Yeah, and uh, likewise, some of the things in V5 wouldn't have worked in 2nd edition that's very true uh there's some of the criticism v5 has received is of course based around its setting in the modern world and i think uh, a lot of that criticism is very is very much valid uh there was a mishandling of elements especially in the camarilla book as has widely been noted now you know i probably don't need to go into that in great detail But, yeah, the writer in that case made a, frankly, stupid judgment. And the developer and editor left it in, in what was also a stupid judgment. (laughs) Uh, And uh, it got caught, it got called out, and it got cut. And that material being cut, contrary to what some people think, wasn't censorship. We weren't being censored. You don't. We weren't self-censoring. We cut it because it wasn't very good, and somehow it had slipped through the editing pass in the first mm-hmm. place. Uh, it should have just never been there. That yeah, that isn't censorship. That's just common sense. I would hope of which we lacked clearly. Uh, I using the royal we. I don't take responsibility for that travesty. <laughs> uh, but I think for the most part, the rest of E five is all very good. Uh, I think, especially. As source books are coming out for it Chicago by night obviously it was released
0: great claim
1: and i 'm very proud of that one. There was a few people online who, of course, wanted to take issue with this element or that, but ninety nine point nine percent i 'm in fact old enough to say that's probably an accurate percentage really seem to love Chicago by Night. They say it's the best city sourcebook they've ever read, and that's huge praise indeed, given the sheer number of city sourcebooks that have come out before this one. Mm-hmm. And it's... Cults of the Blood Gods as well. Just the manuscript alone has pleased a lot of people, so we're obviously doing something right.
0: I, I, w- I had the pleasure of speaking with Jacob Burgess. Uh, we did an interview with him on the show for Cults of the Blood Gods and just his excitement about the book and and just you know talking about... Oh, I, I love the fact that Vampire does indeed look into our darker side and allows us to play that darker side in a safe space. And Cults of Blood God really gets kind of dark. And Jacob Mm -hmm. was kind of talking about some of the research that he did for his writing and how he had to sometimes just step away and have a lot of like what he called it puppy time to get rid of some of that darkness that had built up.
1: Yeah, it was funny he used um, puppy time because I find the same thing with writing and developing in the sense that if I get to work on Pogmire, it is such a breath of fresh air. It, it is like coming up for air. Yeah, uh all they came from, of course, As I spent so long working on horror, getting to work on something that's pure fantasy or science fiction, or just nonsense in the case that they came from, is a real palate cleanser. Very, very helpful. But yeah, we, we, we discovered all kinds of things with Cults of the Blood Gods because we wanted our religions to seem authentic. Uh, they want needed to seem not only authentic to the setting, which I think they manage, but also authentic to our world. Because most things in World of Darkness have got to be, be able to be layered on top of our world. And that's harder with religion, because while cults and all religions do exist, uh, they aren't nearly as plentiful as the ones in cults of the Blood Gods. In a, in a way, I kind of see it more like a Requiem book than a Masquerade book. That'll draw me some higher, I know, but I do think Requiem second edition is still probably the best edition of any vampire game. Uh, really? And yeah, there's that, a controversial take. I didn't even work on that one. Uh, but it's, it's easy for me to say because I didn't work on it. So, uh, in the sense that I wouldn't run a game of Vampire and the Masquerade that had the Church of Cain, the Bihari, the Cult of Death and Undeath, the Church of Sets, the Ephelim, basically all of the major cults that are introduced in Cross the Blood Gods. I wouldn't run a game that has all of them in it, because that's too much. You ha- You pick a few, and you put them in your city. You pick a couple, you put them in your city. And people didn't realize this, but we had already laid the seeds for that. Because in Chicago by Night, you have a member of, uh, well, you have uh, Michaelis Basaras, who is a member of the cult of Shalim. And the cult of Shalim exists in Cults of the Blood Gods. That's where they're formally introduced. You've also got a member of the Church of Set. And you've also got a Bahari group, a garden in Chicago by Night. So we proved before Cults of the Blood Gods came out that this extra layer of almost character customization works perfectly well in Vampire the Masquerade. You can have a character who is an Anarch, a Bahari, and is also a Kitiff or a Ventru or whatever. Uh, And I I love being able to add another axis to a character's creation. I think that is is fun. Anything that gives players utility is a good idea.
0: Yeah, and of course now we have the Fall of London which dives right into the cult of Mithras.
1: Yes, of course. Uh, And so, yeah, I co-developed Fall of London, although my involvement in it was pretty slim. I just uh, proposed, I think, an outline. and So I proposed the outline, I hired the writers and kind of pushed them off. And then I left the project because I had lots of other demands at the time. There was nothing weird or spooky about that. I just had to uh, commit my time elsewhere. And that was all perfectly amicable because I worked on the V5 Players Guide after that. Uh, Not as a developer, as a writer. These are Modiphius projects, of course.
0: Um, and
1: Yeah, so Fall of London goes quite deeply into the cult of Mithras. And from what I haven't even read all of it yet, (laughs) so so there's a confession. As a vampire developer, I've not read all of the Fall of London. But I have. There's parts of it I like, parts of it I think, oh, I would have developed that differently. That's not criticism, that's just because I look at pretty much everything and think, oh, I would have developed that differently, Uh, just because it's the nature of my job at this point. It's quite difficult to read a role-playing game from beginning to end without thinking, what would my take on that? That's probably the same for any GM as well, who thinks. Okay, I would have set up that fantasy government slightly differently, or I would have had this character die and this character survive when they're reading *Lord of the Rings*. I think would it have been more dramatically appropriate if Aragorn had died at the beginning of, well, at the end of the Fellowship movie, let's say, rather than Boromir? How would that change things? Everyone goes through this uh, phase of when they read a book, and I I think *Fall of London* looks beautiful. Still, think *Chicago by Night* looks better. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and i uh i can't wait to see what cults of the blood gods oh
0: i i, I can't wait for cults of the blood gods either i i will say we are currently we just wrapped up uh sacrifice from chicago by night um my players have a weird way of doing things and for some <laughs> reason it just it's just how it goes and you know you talk about comedy and horror they sometimes get silly just to break the tension and and they do a good job of it so now we're playing fall of london and, of course, we're doing this all via Roll20 so we can all stay safe. And so far, we're only one night in. And so far, I think everybody's thoroughly enjoying it. They didn't like the idea of give, being given a pre-made character, but I wanted to, as the storyteller, I was like, you know, guys, this is how we're going to do it this time. I know you guys would like to create your own, but I want you to play these characters just so you can see what it's like. And And I think it's been fairly well-received so far.
1: Well, that, that is good news. Lad. I think uh, that was one of the biggest criticisms of Fall of London, really. It's that people aren't used to playing pre-made characters in Vampire the Masquerade. And I think it has its place. Uh, Ultimately, something like The Sacrifice or the stories, chronicles that appear in Chicago Folios or Let the Streets Run Red, which is coming out soon, of course, uh, they can all be played in sequence. Uh, Whereas Fall of London is more of a capsule and i don't think that's terribly odd because the giovanni chronicles are very encapsulated the transylvania chronicles are as well and in fact the Ventru chronicle or vampire masquerade revised at which spans dark ages victorian and masquerade is a story where you are Pretty much prescribed the role of all playing Ventru. You can play vampires of other clans, but you miss out on a lot if you do. And I remember the criticism that got way back when in two thousand and two or whenever that came out that said, you know, well, I don't want to have to play a Ventru. Well, the clue is in the name, the Ventru Chronicle. (laughs) Uh, uh, All right, the Giovanni Chronicles may have misled you; You could play everything but a Giovanni, and but. Yeah. Uh, I think the Fall of London is just a different style of story. And in that respect, I love it because I want every single story and chronicle. And there there is a difference between the two. As Karim Mu'amar uh paradox constantly reminds me, uh these things are not chronicles. Unless they span months of play, they are stories. Well, that's a very very uh <laughs> interesting distinction, Karim, but we'll we'll go with it. That's why I say both. Uh, right. As if he's going to listen. I'm sure he won't. Uh, if you, you are, hello, Karim. <laughs>
0: hello, Karim. You mentioned something a little bit ago, and I don't know if you were supposed to or not, but you said, uh, I believe you said you're currently working on writing the V5 Player's Guide?
1: Uh, so, I well, I've written a very small part of it. Okay. Uh, I wrote the Hecata, the La Sombra, and the Catev. That's for... that's a fairly
0: good part there, Matthew. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I think so. I like mine. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I'm going to be interested to see how that book turns out. I've seen very little of the other drafts, so I can't speak to the rest of its content. But uh, I'm, I'm happy. I don't know how much of my work is going to be cut down to fit because I tend to overwrite. Uh, now, I never used to, but I've become indulgent in my old age and yeah uh, there will be so for people who don't want to buy chicago or cults of the blood gods specifically to get access to the La Sombra or the Hecata, which some people may well have done the player's guide has the rules for playing those clans in it so if you want a one-stop shop for your clans the player's guide is definitely going to be where you go
0: that that comment didn't make any sense to me. Why wouldn't you buy both of those books well, <laughs> as well I mean, as I, The Player's Guide? <laughs> that's what I think.
1: I mean, uh, what I truly love about V5, and this ha- was not Paradox's agenda at all. This is purely my agenda and something I have achieved by being the developer <laughs> uh, for the so many books, is that the Sombra, the Hecata, and the Ministry, so formerly the followers of set as the Hecata, or formerly the Giovanni and Cappadocians, uh, those three clans have received more coverage each than any other clan. Now, that may not sound terribly interesting, but the idea in any previous edition of Vampire the Masquerade that ahead of the Gangrel, the Ventru, and the Tremere that you would get La Sombra, Hecata, and Ministry in incredible detail. It, it tickles me. It makes me feel very happy because, uh, yeah, I am in—I am self indulgent to a degree. I love those clans. There are very few clans I dislike. But now that Cults of the Blood Gods, of course, has the Hecata in a massive way, has the Church of Set in it, which su- supplements Ministry's appearance in the Anarch book. And the La Sombra are uh, in Chicago by Night in a major way as well. So, yeah, I, if I had my way, all every single major release of Vampire the Masquerade would have a brand new spotlight put on a clan. That, that's how I would do it. So well, that, would,
0: that would be fascinating.
1: Uh, yeah, If I could do another book right now, uh, a big one that would end up on Kickstarter, I would have the Ravnos or the Zimmies and uh, the ZMC would naturally fall in the Sabbat, but I I would love to do a book with the Ravnos in, and that would be their spotlight. And once the ZMC and the Ravnos are done, we then do a book where the Ventru receive a massive spotlight, and we get to see some of their inner workings and then we have one with the Tremere. So there's always something to appeal to players. I think the moment you release a book that only appeals to storytellers is the point at which you will see sales drop off and as much as we are all creative artists and we should only write because we love it, we also need to write books that sell. And that means the books need to appeal to players as well as storytellers.
0: I completely agree. And I'm, it warms my cold dead heart to hear you mention the Ravenous, which happens to be my personal favorite clan. I fell in love with them when I read them in the player's handbook and I played them in live action. I read the the uh, original um clan book back and forth multiple times so i'm really glad to see and it it felt like they were kind of being shunted out of fifth edition i know there were some some issues there culturally and such that they wanted to steer away from but i'm i'm i really hope they're not gone I, i i just think it's a great clan
1: i don't think they'll be gone i think there's the possibility they could be reduced to a bloodline and in a narrative sense, I think system-wise, they would have their own clan write-up, and this is pure speculation. There isn't a book, as far as I know, that has the Ravnos planned for oh, it. Oh, I know. But I think they were kind of written into a corner with the Time of Thin Blood. I think the book was was it Time of Thin Blood or Nights of Prophecy Week? Yeah, Time of Thin Blood or the Week of Nightmares in where the Ravnos were pretty much obliterated because of the rising of their antediluvian, devouring all of, their, all of his child and so on and so forth. Right, And I think in the Gehenna book, which may or may not be canon at this point, they are maybe even cited as being reduced to something like 10% of their numbers. So the Ravnos there aren't a huge number of them. But bear in mind, Gehenna came out about 20 years ago now, almost. So the Ravnos could have proliferated since then. I think there's definitely space for them. I would certainly move them away from the Romany stereotype, and Revised Edition V20 did a very good job of doing that anyway. Uh, I mm-hmm. think attaching any clans to a cultural or ethnic group or religious group uh, s- exclusively, and the Ravnos never attached them exclusively, but they were largely seen as th- uh, is a bad idea especially now right. so i think every single clan should occupy a place in vampire myth or mythos and the hecata are somewhat tenuous because vampire necromants don't really appear often in media uh, I think the, the idea of an undead thing, undead parasite that can speak to spirits and animate the dead to serve them and everything, feels appropriately to Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, for me, the Ravnos occupy, without the cultural baggage, the idea of the rock band, the circus, the... they They still travel. Uh, they are nightmares that stalk from domain to domain. And rather than having them do the treatment, although you could still call it the treatment, I guess, uh, that basically makes a prince's day go bad if they aren't fulfilling <laughs> their darnic <laughs> costs, uh, they, I think they can play the role of people you have to pay off, otherwise they're going to seriously screw you up. So, yeah, ma- lean into the idea of them as anti-changeling. They are nightmares. They are people that vampire tell bedtime stories about before sunrise because there are so few of them now. Anyone embraced in the last 20 years probably isn't going to have met a Ravnos, which means that the stories of these uh, Ravnos that can make your nightmares come true and stalk you during the day is horrifying to a vampire. I, I think there's a lot of material there you could till and I would certainly be up for it if the opportunity ever arises.
0: I would certainly back it if it ever arose and came to Kickstarter.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, here's well, man, you,
0: I have kept you for a while and and I greatly appreciate you you taking time out of your day to join us and talk to us especially on our little show. What other projects are you working on that you'd like to just highlight quickly and tell people about or that uh, you can ooh. tell people about?
1: Yeah, that's So many, so many projects right now that I'm working (laughs) on, Uh, and I think I went through most of them at the uh, start of the show, but do keep an eye out for Solemn Vale uh, when that comes to Kickstarter, that's folk horror, very Wicker Man-esque, or a field in England, lots of Ben Wheatley influences there, excuse me. Technocracy Reloaded, of course, is currently on Kickstarter, and I don't know when this episode will go out, but it will probably be on Kickstarter for another couple of weeks yet, so do back that if you want a lovely deluxe version and want to play Men in Black with magic. Uh, You can also still back They Came From Beneath the Sea on back kit. You can still back Cults of the Blood Gods on back kit. And, yeah, I think... By all means, tune into the Onyx Pathcast, not that I want to take away from any of your listeners, and do subscribe to the Onyx Path blog because we release a new blog entry every Monday night, so you'll see it on Tuesday morning, that will tell you about our the current projects we're working on, whether those are being written, whether we're getting art in, or whether they're due to come out this week. We still release, and have done for years now, we release something new every single Wednesday. And we there has not, as far as I know, been a Wednesday where we haven't. And that is quite something. There's always going to be someone who says, you know, I want another Mage of the Awakening, or I want another book for a game that I love, and that is absolutely fine. We work on lots of games and we release something different every single Wednesday. So do tune in onto our blog, theonyxpath.com, because you'll find out what this Wednesday or
0: next Wednesday's offering is. And I believe it was some a bunch of Scarland stuff with virtual tabletop as well as the newest yeah. Uh, what was it, the um, Vigil's Watch, the latest edition of that.
1: Yes, Vigil's Watch, well observed. Yes, indeed. Uh, I do love Scarred Lands. Fantastic setting for Dungeons & Dragons. I think Travis Legg, the current uh, developer of Scarred Lands, refers to it as heavy metal D&D, and that's uh, a good way of putting it. I love the the idea of an environment so scarred by gods and titans warring that there is a sea that is literally made of blood because there's a dying Titan at the bottom of it that just can't stop bleeding. And the idea of fossilized body parts all around the on the horizon that you can literally crawl into and dungeoneer your way through. It's <laughs> uh, it's quite visually spectacular. So yeah, Scarred Lands is amazing. Everyone should check it out. And check me out on MatthewDawkins.com. Now you can see my full list of credits. Uh, join my Patreon or just buy me a cup of tea. Uh, this, this job doesn't pay that well, but I get by on a lot of people's generosity and goodwill. And I
0: So if they wanted to reach out on you on Twitter, how could they do that, Matthew? Uh, they can find me as
1: ClackClickBang uh, or just look up Matthew Dawkins. Uh, again, if you go on com, you can find the links to, I think, pretty much all of my social
0: medias. So uh, please do that. Matthew, thanks again for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well. Thank you for having me.